The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning. So this week when I started looking at what to speak on today, I came across an article that said, five fun things to do on Remembrance Day. I got to be honest with you, I felt angry and disappointed. I was thinking to myself, do they even know what this means? People died. And then shortly after, I felt this nudge from the one that gave us the perfect example. And I heard the question, do you know why I died for you? I died so you could have freedom, so you may have life and have it more abundantly. So let's examine freedom, the power to act, speak, or think as one wants without restraint, absence of subjection to foreign domination, the state of not being imprisoned or enslaved, power of self-determination, freedom to be alive, of association, of speech, to express oneself, of the press, to talk to one another, of religion, from bondage and slavery. Kevin Richard is a freelance writer and a police officer, so what he says must be true. He asks the question and answers it, so what is so special about freedom that it's deserving of such an immense sacrifice? Consider its source, our freedom of thought, opinion, belief, expression, and the pursuit of happiness inhabits the deepest depths of our souls. Solely through the expression of our freedom is meaning given to our lives. We are free to pursue good as we are free to pursue evil. We are free to pursue truth as we are free to pursue deception. We are free to obey as we are free to disobey. We are endowed by providence to be free and for this reason we fight. We fight for what is rightfully ours. We fight for the meaningful exercise of a divine gift. We often take for granted our Canadian values and institutions, our freedom to participate in cultural and political events, and our right to live under a government of our choice. The Canadians who went off to war in distant lands went in the belief that the values and beliefs enjoyed by Canadians were being threatened. They truly believed that without freedom, there can be no ensuring peace, and without peace, no enduring freedom. By remembering their sacrifice and service, we recognize the tradition of freedom these men and women fought to preserve. On Remembrance Day, we acknowledge the courage and sacrifice of those who served their country and acknowledged our responsibility to work for the peace they fought hard to achieve. I encourage you on Monday, go and participate in a Remembrance Day service. Remember those who have given the ultimate sacrifice and support those who currently serve. Remember, and then go enjoy that freedom and do something fun. Remembering all the while the privileges we have to be in a nation that is free. Would you please join me in prayer? Sovereign God, loving and merciful, you've created us in your image and blessed us with freedom, the freedom of choice. You love us beyond our comprehension and you dearly long for us to love you. Because we chose sin instead of you, you provided the means of our redemption and restoration of relationship to you through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Because we have chosen sin, we live in a sinful world and must deal with the consequences of our sin and rebellion. You have ordained earthly authorities to rule over the nations. We've encoded laws to reflect your perfect law in order to limit the harm caused by the sin of others. We have police forces to serve and protect our communities. 
and we have military forces who seek to preserve peace amongst nations. The history of this world has been a history of warfare, and when sinful aggression from one nation threatens the peaceful and independent existence of another nation, that nation and its allies have little choice but to meet violent attack with violent response. We are blessed to live in a nation that has a relatively peaceful history, but our military forces have often been called upon to help defend other countries and to help restore peace to areas of the world that do not share the same peace and freedoms that we do. Millions have answered the call, going to far off places to serve in the Boer War, the First and Second World Wars, the Korean War, and in over 60 years of peace support operations from Egypt and Cyprus to former Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Mali, and dozens of other countries. Many thousands have paid the ultimate price and did not return home. Tens and hundreds of thousands came home physically and emotionally scarred from their experiences. As we contemplate the peace and freedom we enjoy in our country today, I pray that we would never forget the sacrifices of so many that have served throughout our history to preserve peace and freedom for our nation and for the peoples of other nations around the world. I pray for the members of our armed forces who are serving today in difficult and dangerous places far from home. I pray that you would preserve and protect them as they serve to protect others. I pray that they would come home to their families and friends and receive the support and care they need and deserve in the healing of their wounds, both seen and unseen. And Father God, I pray that all the peoples of all the nations of this world would realize their need for ultimate salvation, turn over control of their lives to you, and experience the true peace and freedom that only comes through our relationship with you, through our one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. Well, we are in uh, our series on Genesis, and we've been here since uh, September, and we've been studying the image of God in the past several weeks. We've been looking at how it is that being created as humans in the image of God means that we are stewards of God's creation. It means that we are co-creators as we work on this earth to do what God has gifted and called us to do. We have seen how today we are also to rest with God and understand Sabbath. <clears throat> We're going to be moving on to talk about what we are as spiritual beings with souls. We're going to be talking about how we are volitional, moral choice beings. We're going to be talking about how are we relational beings and that we are male and female beings. And all of this is coming under that banner of, of the image of God. But today we, we read in the scriptures that... Um, are in, found in Genesis chapter 2. And if you'd turn that, that with me now, we're going to just read the scripture before we go further. Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> and just a few verses we're going to look at today, but a big theme. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Would you stand with me? Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Amen. You may be seated. May God bless his word. So God rested. Why did God rest? 
Is it because God was tired? He'd worked for six whole days. <laughs> what is it that we are to understand about Sabbath rest? And how is it that we need to rest? There's a whole bunch here that I'd like to get into. But before we do that, I would like to ask you, have you ever been given the gift of time? You know, the kind of thing where it happens where um, somebody cancels a meeting that you were supposed to go to and you have an evening off. Or a snowstorm hits in October, wonder of all things, and, and you, you can't do anything about it. Or perhaps you get the flu and you have to stay home. What do you do with the gift of time? For me, I know that sometimes I fritter it away, which usually means I watch too much television. Sometimes also I'll use it as time to catch up on things, like I'll catch up on something at home in reading I'm doing or email. But sometimes, sometimes I'll use the gift of time to actually think about rest and what God wants me to do in Sabbath rest understanding. So I will actually sleep more, maybe. Or I will have a longer nap that day. Or I will read. Or I will journal about what God has been doing in my life. What do we do with Sabbath, and how are we to understand it? It is such a time for our souls to catch up to our bodies. And in the short time that I have this morning to talk about Sabbath, we're going to be doing a, a survey of all of Scripture to look at the five different ways that I believe Sabbath is used in the Bible. And we're going to also hopefully come to the final conclusion that it's not some luxury that you can choose into or out of, but rather it's an actual necessity if you're going to have real equilibrium in your life and, and if you're going to have an existence on earth that is filled with peace. But first, let's do a little history lesson. Back in 1845, before Canada was a federation, in Upper Canada, there was a law that was passed forbidding anyone to do or exercise any worldly labor, business, or work of one's ordinary calling on a Sunday, back in 1845. In 1906, after Canada had been a federation, of course, Confederation had come, the Lord's Day Act was passed, and in 1906 it was stated by law prohibiting business transactions from taking place on Sundays. Now that law lasted until the 1960s when Parliament passed an amendment to allow on Sundays all kinds of recreational activities, agricultural and trade shows, science exhibitions, and horse racing. And then, in 1985, the Supreme Court of Canada voided the Lord's Day Act as an infringement, infringement on personal rights and freedoms. 1992, Ontario was the first province then to allow for Sunday shopping. And, of course, we know where we are now on that. It's, it's wide open. You might also be interested to know that the, that the very first five-day work week was not so long ago, as we understand it. It was actually in 1908 that the first five-day work week was instituted in the United States at a cotton mill because most of its workers were Jewish and the owners were giving them Saturday off to celebrate their Sabbath. And then around that time, 1926 actually, Henry Ford began shutting down his automotive factories for all day Saturday and Sunday, creating the first 40-hour work week. 
and the first weekend as we now understand it. I read not too long ago that in a global news uh, survey, 68% of Canadians would like to have a four-day work week. <laughs> I heard an amen. <laughs> they still suggested it be 40 hours, though, just so you know. So what do we make of all this understanding of Sabbath and of Sunday, and how do we arrive at this, and where did we go wrong or right, and so on? And, you know, it's, it's interesting because even if we were to work less, we, we still live in an age and a time when we enjoy more luxuries, leisures and pleasures than any other time in history. Today we are enjoying things that kings, even a hundred years ago, would have been envious of us on and the poorest of us. It's incredible, but we don't seem to have enough. Do we work too hard? Are we not working enough? Do we understand rest? Let's take a look at the scriptures. You'll notice in the insert in your bulletin that I have five points I want to make. We'll go quickly through them. And the first one is we'll begin at the beginning with God's rest, the very scripture that we read. It says that on the seventh day, God finished his work and he rested. It comes from the word, Hebrew word, Shabbat, which is the word to cease or desist. So the word Sabbath does not mean rest. The word Sabbath means stop cease, desist, stop doing what you've been doing all week long. And so Sabbath is that time when you stop your work and you, you consider resting and thinking on the Lord. But the Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 passage is not talking about our Sabbath rest. It's talking about God's Sabbath rest. Let me make some observations about this passage, first of all, or about the seventh day because we've talked about the other six days of creation in the past. Notice in the seventh day, there's no formula that God said, let there be something, because he didn't make anything on the seventh day. There was no creating, speaking into existence. His work was done. Notice that there is no evening and no morning the seventh day in the Scripture. And that's because the seventh day continues in God's economy. Creation was to enjoy a perpetual rest as God entered this Sabbath. Notice on the seventh day, it's the only day of the week that is blessed and it is made holy, consecrated by God. Notice that the number seven is repeated three times instead of just once in the other days of creation. And notice that seventh day, unlike the other six, is not paired with another day, like one and four, two and five, three and six, like we talked about. So there's something very special about the seventh day here. And the thing I want to just draw your attention to in this first point is that this passage, which is the, the platform of all under, other passages understanding Sabbath in the whole Bible, but this passage is talking about God's rest, not our rest. This is God resting, okay? It tells us that God rested from the work of his creation. He saw what he had made on the sixth day. He said, this is very good, and he put his tools away. And he rested on the seventh day. And he, he took his place on his throne as the sovereign Lord of all creation in heaven and earth. And it says in the scriptures that heaven is his, his throne and earth is his footstool. And he has not relinquished that throne. He is still the sovereign God over all of creation. That's what I'd like you to understand from our first meaning of Sabbath in chapter 2 of Genesis. 
The next significant reference to the Sabbath is found in the next book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, in chapter 20, where we read about the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment is very clearly, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath to Lord, uh, the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, me, female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Surely this is the passage on which the Lord's Day Act was built in Canada in 1906. It was to legislate an observance of the law of Moses on all of society, which at that time, at the turn of the century, was relatively Christianized. But again, let me clarify, this was a legislating on all of secular Canada an Old Testament understanding of Sabbath, okay? And applying it to Sunday instead of Saturday. As we referenced when we studied Galatians last spring, we are not bound by the law of Moses, folks. We are Christians, Christ followers. We are, not new, we are new covenant Christians, not old covenant believers. We are bound to Christ not by a law, but by the love and grace of Jesus Christ himself, this covenant that we have made with him through faith in him. And so therefore, by virtue of that, I can tell you that we are not Sabbatarians. We are not first-day Sabbatarians, neither are we seventh-day Sabbatarians. We are non-Sabbatarian. In other words, we do not believe in the strict observance of neither a Saturday nor a Sunday or any other day that has to be observed in a particular way because we are religious or Christ followers. Certainly many of you will be familiar with the groups like the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I know that uh, Stephen Mendes and, and Sean and Stephanie have come from from Sri Lanka, and they grew up in a, in a Seventh-day Adventist. We've, they've shared a bit of their testimony with us. And uh, we don't agree with, neither do they. they, they came out of that legalism of viewing the Saturday as the Sabbath and requiring it of all Christians. That group believes that God requires church services to be held on the Sabbath, the sa Saturday, and we believe they missed the point of what Jesus came to give us in the freedom from the law of Moses and to make a new covenant under his blood that is giving us the grace to acknowledge any day as sacred to him. And so the first point I made this morning is that Genesis 2 is about God's rest. Exodus 20 and other passages like Deuteronomy 5 is about Israel's rest. But when we continue and open the pages of the New Testament, we realize that there is indeed an understanding that Jesus gave of, of, a, of a day of rest. Jesus' ministry, scandalized by, by the religious people, he, he, was, he was scandalous in his observance of the Sabbath as well as of his teaching of the Sabbath. And we'll just give you one little window into that in Mark chapter 2 where we read about a time when Jesus and his disciples were, were walking through the grain fields. And as they were walking along, his disciples were bringing the grain into their fingers and taking some kernels out of their, their hands and eating it as they went. The Pharisees who observed that believed that was harvesting, working on the Sabbath. Such was their legalism. 
And so they confronted Jesus and they said, look, your disciples do what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus, knowing their hearts and knowing that he had to change the understanding in the inaugurating of his own life to give grace to humanity, confronted them by telling them a story about David. He recited a, a passage in Psalm in 1 Samuel 21 when David, remember David was running from, from Absalom or from Saul, and, and uh, at that time in David's life, he went into the tabernacle and he ate the bread of the presence, it was called, which was lawful only for priests to eat. And it says in the scriptures that, that he walked in and the priest allowed him to eat and his men ate that as well. And then they left and they went on. And it says in the scriptures that, that God did not condemn them for doing that. And so he shares that story with them. And then Jesus adds these words, which would have really annoyed the Pharisees. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So in this passage, Jesus is announcing a new understanding of the Sabbath, of the season of grace, which he had inaugurated. And these words were piercing and profound because he's saying to the Pharisees, the religious people, he is saying, you have it all wrong. You are prepared. You are prepared to, to judge and cast out people created in the image of God because they pick up a tool on the Sabbath, because they help their neighbor with their donkey on the Sabbath, because they eat a few kernels of wheat on the Sabbath, and it was humans that were made first, not the Sabbath. You have it all wrong. The Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath. And so he confronted them and said that it was the Sabbath purpose was to cease from labor, not to add more laborious, legalistic laws on top of those who were trying to follow God. Now, some of you grew up with rules surrounding Sundays that I'm sure many younger people didn't have. I had a Sunday experience that I'll tell you about. It was back in my first church I pastored near Dryden, Ontario, Eagle River Baptist Church, I was about 23 years old, my first year, my first pastoral ministry, and I had not really figured out what I believed about Sabbath. And one day, I played, in a, I played in a local recreational hockey league, and one day, uh, there was a, a game in Vermilion Bay at 12.30 on a Sunday, and my buddy and I, he, he had his pickup truck running at the end of the service outside, and uh, I, I didn't shake hands at the door that day like I normally did in that church. And I, I grabbed my hockey equipment, threw it in the back of his pickup truck, and off we went to, to Vermilion Bay. Well, that day or two later, I got an invitation to go for lunch <laughs> from a dear, dear couple, Percy and Lily in Dryden, who came to our church, founding members of our church that time. And I thought this was just a wonderful thing. I get to visit Percy and Lily, and Lily made great food. And so we had a wonderful meal. And then, and then uh, as Lily was clearing off the table, and I was getting ready for this wonderful dessert that was coming, uh, Percy cleared his throat, and he said, We don't like the example you're setting for the young people. And I didn't understand what he meant. And then he explained and, and we had a good conversation about what he, they, believed about Sunday and sports and all that. 
And I had to go home as a 23-year-old pastor and figure out, well, what do I believe about that? I came to the conclusion that very week that I didn't think there was anything wrong with playing sports on Sunday. And yet I did feel some conviction about the fact that I rushed out the door and did not fulfill my role as a pastor that day. And so I, I got up in the pulpit the next Sunday and I shared with the church kind of an apology and just saying that I'd been working this through, <laughs> of course. After that service, I had the other side of the camp, the, the more libertine group, take me aside and call me a people pleaser. And, you know, just. So I, I, I got shot at from both sides, you know. That's what happened. I want you to turn to someone around you that's over 40 years of age and ask them what they grew up with as far as Sunday observance went. Did they have rules in their home about Sundays? Just have a little chat with somebody near you right now. Okay. <clears throat> oh, I'd love to hear the stories that are going on right now. <laughs> Probably some really good stories happening right now. Now, why did I say 40? I don't know. I just thought, you know, somewhere around there is maybe where it, it, it started to change. So let's go on to talk about the Christian's rest in our fourth point. This is an idea that is developed especially in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, 3 and 4, but essentially what the writer of Hebrews is doing in this passage is he is taking the word Sabbath and he's using it as an illustration, the Old Testament understanding of Sabbath. And it's a very interesting reference. He's referring to an event that happened in Numbers chapter 14, and you'll remember this story. That in Numbers chapter 14, you remember that Moses has led Israel into the wilderness and they are at the edge of the promised land. And he sends 12 spies in to check out the land. And the spies come back and 10 of them give a bad report about what's in the land of Canaan and two of them give a good report and say, we can take the land, God is with us. Well, the Israelites believed the ten, a bad report, not the two, and God judged them for murmuring against and grumbling against Moses and being unwilling to enter the promised land. And so because of their disobedience, for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness until everybody that had left Egypt that was over 20 years of age had died in the wilderness. Except who? Joshua and Caleb, the two spies that came back with the good report and said, we can do this if God's help. So that's the, that's the story that is referenced in Hebrews chapter 4. And the writer of Hebrews then takes the idea of entering Canaan, the promised land, as entering their rest. Because when they would fight the Canaanites and conquer the land, says in the Bible, they would have rest on every side. Every frontier, every boundary, rest. So that's the illustration that the writer of Hebrews uses in chapter 4 to describe a rest that is yet awaiting every Christian. 
every person. The idea is that, that Jesus is our Joshua. Jesus is the one that leads us into that promised land of rest. Jesus is the one that we must believe and follow. He will lead us to the rest we desperately need. And of course, that is our salvation. It is our peace with God. It is our eternal life. It is our forgiveness. And of course, in the full measure, we wait yet in its full measure. But we already enjoy that peace with God. So therefore, in Hebrews 4.9, it says this, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So this idea that we put down our works, our idea that we can somehow please God in our own strength and ability and wisdom and so on, and we trust fully in Jesus Christ, we enter into that rest, that peace with God, and we have rest on all sides. God is our strength and our refuge. He is our rest, our peace, our Sabbath. And uh, so we are able then to wait for his full accomplishment. And that leads us to the final point of the message this morning, which is really the way, I think, that we are meant as Christians of this, of this time in the New Covenant to understand Sabbath rest. It's a Sabbath rest principle that we find in the New Testament. I want to read to you a, a quote by Norman Wiersbaugh. He says, It makes sense to think of Sabbath observance as one of our most honest and practical indicators of authentic faith. The extent and depth of our Sabbath commitment is the measure of how far we have progressed in our discipleship and in our friendship with God. In other words, this, this idea of the principle of Sabbath is so very critical to being intimate with God the Father, to having a close walk with God. Now, if you're inclined to see that spiritual practices don't matter and that you can do what you please because we're under grace, you need to know that meeting together is a very important thing for Christians, according to God's Word. The writer of Hebrews later on says, let us consider to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So Sabbath observance is, is ceasing from the work that you normally do all week long and seeking God with His people. That's a very important principle, but we're not legalistic about it. We're not saying that if you miss a Sunday, you're, you're somehow going to be judged for that, but we believe it's an important thing to pursue, and that Jesus Christ is the substance of the, what we're, of the fellowship we're seeking. The church began to meet on the first day of the week, of course, because it was the day of resurrection. It was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And we believe that that's a good idea, is meeting on Sundays. I would have no trouble if we had a Saturday evening service as well, or some other day of the week. The point is, is that when you do miss a Sunday service or a time together, is how is it that you replenish that connection with believers in your life during that week? So that you can do what Hebrews 10 says, encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I want to conclude by just sharing some of what I believe Sabbath observance should or could mean. And I think that um, for me, I've been doing a little bit of an, an inventory of my life. Pat and I were away at a conference last week, and 
the speaker was talking about some things that really convicted me, and uh, I especially was convicted that I need to slow down. And uh, slowing down means not being in a hurry because intimate relationships will not be developed if you're in a hurry. And that applies to your marriage or your friendships or your relationship with God, doesn't it? You cannot have a good relationship if you're in a hurry, if you don't have time for that relationship. And so I began to do a, a bit of an inventory. I've read recently about John Ortberg, who was one day going through a lot of turmoil in his spiritual life. And he went to Dallas Willard and asked some advice. And Dallas Willard said this. He said, you need to ruthlessly eliminate all hurry from your life. For hurry is the greatest enemy of spiritual life in our world today. You need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I read a blog after that that said that in order to eliminate hurry, you'll need to practice Sabbath regularly, setting aside blocks of time that are unhurried and unproductive. Unhurried and unproductive, he says. Do nothing. Do nothing. Don't try to make it happen. Relax, pray, enjoy God, and enjoy your family. Now, when I hear that, when I read that blog, the activist in me reacted. The workaholic in me got worked up. The Martha in me was a little ticked off. How could it be godly to do nothing? I think we're all kind of painted with a bit of the same brush on this. What is it all about? Yesterday, the men were treated to a beautiful breakfast at the men's breakfast, and we were also treated by Sean Humphreys to a, a wonderful message, a personal story of a man who has gone through physical difficulties, hip replacement and so on, and in the process has seen the hand of God teaching him about what it means to be in control of your life and what it means to, to slow down and what it means to understand what God's trying to teach him. was blessed this yesterday morning. What I feel convicted about is that hurry is a symptom of an exaggerated self-importance. That's what I think. I think hurry is a symptom of a, an exaggerated self-importance, an ego. I think impatience is the same thing. Impatience is saying, your life is not as important as my life. Would you just get hurry up? I've been convicted that these are things that can hinder my own walk with God and my relationships. It's an addiction that I started to take a fearless inventory over my aversion to resting. And as I journaled about it this past week, God reminded me of so many areas where I'm so much in a hurry. And I have a lot of work to do to figure out slowing down. I read a book this past week by a guy named Carrie Newwolf. It says, didn't see it coming. It's a book. He used to be a lawyer. He's a pastor, speaker now. It's called Overcoming the Seven Greatest Challenges That No One Expects and Everyone Experiences. He identified that he had a performance addiction. 
And he talks in that book about the need to slow down. He says, I have discovered that a hurried life leads to an unexamined and disconnected life. Hurry kills intimacy with God, family, and friends. Doug shared last week that we must not let our worth be derived from our work. And indeed, that's something that I've been convicted over as well. So as we conclude this morning, and perhaps I'll invite the worship team to come as I just share my last words here. But what I want us to think about as we conclude is that is this idea that without hurry, and I know it sounds so unproductive to be not hurrying, but without hurry, we are actually able to focus on the moment that we're in, without hurry. When we're hurrying, we can't focus on the moment that we're in. So without hurry, we focus on the moment that we're in, and we can recognize what God is doing right now. But in work, we are tending toward fixating on what we are doing, not what God is doing, what we are doing. Sabbath, then, for me, is this ceasing to seek. Ceasing my work so that I can seek to be in tune with what God's work is in and around me. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you might be pleased to help us as we seek to slow down to get in step with you, the three-mile-an-hour God, that we might recognize, oh, Father, where we have been starved of intimacy because we are in a hurry. We are impatient. We have an exaggerated self-importance. Oh, God, forgive us for our pride, and help us, O oh Lord, to understand that when we slow down and maybe face some of the dragons that come out in our rest, that's okay, God, for us to, to self-examine, to be self-aware, and to bring those dragons to you. God, would you help us? Would you help us, O oh Father, to to invite you into our hurried lives and to slow down to get in step with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.